Catherine, welcome to Waterstones. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask you first, if you don't mind, to kind of give me the elevator pitch for Impossible Creatures. I've seen you do this, so I know you're good at it. So, Impossible Creatures is set on an enchanted cluster of islands called the Archipelago, hidden from us right in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean, where all the creatures of myth are still alive. And that means both unicorns and centaurs and sphinxes that we're familiar with, but also the creatures of myth that humanity believed in, wrote down, and forgot. So al-mirages, which you get in 13th century Persian manuscripts, or um, karkadans, which are a kind of uh, like irate, perpetually hungry unicorn with skin that sort of falls off their bones. Um, the idea behind it is, what if? every creature that humankind for the last 2,000 years has imagined was real. I sort of feel like we could end our conversation right there <laughs> and just go, why would you not want to read that? <laughs> yeah. But we will get into more depth. Um, in fact, if you don't mind, I would really like to go back to your own childhood because you didn't grow up in the UK, you grew up in Zimbabwe, and I would be fascinated to know how that childhood was maybe different to my own or in the sort of childhood that you might expect in the UK? I think the thing that was so lucky was my parents allowed us to be outside in groups of kids or alone without parental supervision. <laughs> and that is so hard to achieve, both logistically in England and also just in terms of a kind of cultural permission. Mm. I think it was quite normal to do that in Zim in a way that it just isn't in 2023 in England. But the time you spend without parents is time that shines when you're a kid. It is when you feel most vividly alert. Mm. And so we spent a lot of time outside doing things that we probably shouldn't have, um, you know, poling across little tiny lakes with rafts made out of logs. There was nothing in the lakes like crocodiles, but, you know, probably quite a lot of like leptospirosis, you know, <laughs> rat disease. <laughs> That sort of spirit of adventure, it seems to me, definitely permeates into your children's fiction. Um, but before we get to that, you, you did grow up in Zimbabwe and then you, you moved to Belgium and then you ended up in the UK. And, you know, you went to a very prestigious university and at the end of that, where you did your doctoral thesis on John Donne. Now, many people will know that you went on to write a book about John Donne, uh, which has won all the awards that it could possibly have won. But it, it would have been very easy, I suppose, for you to have written that book after finishing that doctoral thesis, but you didn't choose to write that book. You chose to write children's fiction. And I'm really interested to know why you started there. I think it's partly because I started very young. And I was 21, and I think my childhood still felt so vividly close to the surface of my consciousness. I think I wanted to write about it while I could still get at it. Mm. But it is also... This is hard to say without sounding mad and grandiloquent, <laughs> but I think that children's fiction is the kind of writing that teaches children what it might look like to be happy. Mm -hmm. It offers them a blueprint for being a person in the world. It teaches them about vulnerability and endurance and power and love. And I loved the idea that you might be able to offer children books that they would not just read, but devour and that would get into their blood and into their bones because if you really love a children's book when you're a child it 
puts down roots in your soul and you carry it with you until you die. Mm. One of your early books that sort of first brought you to my attention, if you like, was um, Rooftoppers, which won the Waterstones Children's Book Prize back in 2015. Um, and we need to talk about your own rooftopping because I understand <laughs> you're quite keen on rooftop walking. Can you tell me when this started, how it manifested, and what the appeal is? So Rooftoppers is set on the rooftops of Paris, children who live up on the rooftops of Paris, sort of secret lives. And the thing I always tell children when I go to schools is the idea for it came while I was on a rooftop, the rooftop of my then Oxford College, All Souls College. And I think the idea of climbing rooftops was in part because there were no mountains readily available in Oxfordshire. And so the idea that you could climb a building and get up high and see a different vision of the city. And there's also, of course, a very long tradition of rooftop climbing in Oxbridge. There's the night climbers of Cambridge who were climbing in, I think, the 1920s in waistcoats and suits and ties and monocles. And so I think I wanted to write with rooftoppers something that would be about children having an unusual, wildish kind of life. Mm. Is that again, I mean, that feels very connected to your, again, your own childhood, that lack of supervision, the, the transgression, I suppose, mm. of being in somewhere that you're not supposed to be. And I suppose, as you say, the different perspective it gives you on the world if you're up that high. Yes, I think so. I think the rooftop climbing, I'm always very keen to point out that I am not like those brilliant, <laughs> terrifying parkour boys who are wandering around, like leaping from roof to roof. This is much more sedate and careful <laughs> and much more to do with the vision that you get at the top mm. than, than anything else, really. Um, because I think a lot of cities can feel uh, difficult to understand and difficult to love when you're young, difficult to really get a grip on. Mm. And I think one way to know a city is to see it from above. It's not the only strange hobby you have, I understand. <laughs> um, do you still begin each day with a cartwheel uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me more about trapeze and tightrope walking? So the cartwheel thing, that was true when I was 23, but of course the internet doesn't go away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also live in a tiny London flat now, which if I tried to cartwheel, I would rapidly concuss myself against the doorknob. Okay. Um, the trapeze is, I learnt the trapeze for The Good Thieves, a book in which some children perform a heist and one of them uses their circus skills. They are a trapeze artist. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went and I did some trapeze with a journalist from the Financial Times. And that again has slightly mutated into trapeze artiste Catherine Rundle. <laughs> I think it's important to say, I am bad at the trapeze. <laughs> I love it and I am eager at the trapeze, but not skilled. If you saw me, you wouldn't be like, she flies through the air with the greatest of ease. You would yeah. be like, Ah, uh, a body on a string. <laughs> Does anybody know where St John's ambulance is? Right, exactly. You know, I have injured myself so many times. <laughs> I've lacerated half my face once. It's, you know. Well, well, I think it's interesting because it shows the kind of lengths that you're interested to go to when it comes to researching the ideas that are in your books. And presumably, with impossible creatures, there must be a large amount of research that's gone into it because of these, as you've already mentioned, some mythical mm. creatures that most people won't have heard of. Would you mind telling me a bit about that process for the book? So that was such a, a real rich, deep pleasure because I spent many, many, many hours in different libraries, um, the Bodleian in Oxford and the British Library, reading, first of all, all of the encyclopedias I could find of mythic creatures. But then I also wanted the 
first-hand accounts of those creatures. Mm. So things like what you might find drawn in the margins of 14th century British manuscripts mm. or, um, you know, Pliny wrote the natural history uh, about 2,000 years ago and it was probably the first encyclopedia and in it he writes entirely serious and sometimes quite accurate accounts of uh, birds and mice and bats but also the jaculus tree dragon the tiny dragon that lives in a tree which will hurl itself like a javelin at your face, says Pliny. And I loved this, the interplay between things which we know to be real and things which we now know to be fictional but were treated with the absolute seriousness and care as something that was real. How did you decide which creatures to keep in your book and which to leave out? Or did you just put as many of them in as you possibly could? So some of them have had to be postponed until book two. Okay. So there is, um, at the beginning of the book, there's a bestiary of 21 creatures and there'll be another bestiary for book two of entirely new creatures and the same for book three. And that way I hope to manage to give a little space to all of these creatures, which I want to give children a sense of what marvels the human imagination has conjured over the last two to three thousand years. Mm. But I suppose you bring to that, it's interesting what you're saying there about Pliny, so with your previous book, The Golden Mole, of course, mm. you were writing about animals which are real, but with, I suppose, with that same kind of attention to detail and the idea that they are endangered and therefore almost as extraordinary as animals that have never existed. So there's a little moment in the book where the sphinx, whose name is Naravarala, uh, says to the young children, there are things in the archipelago which they have and of course we do not mm. but there are things that we have and they do not they think panthers are mythical they think swifts are mythical and hedgehogs um and Naravarala says to the boy from our world christopher take care that they do not become mythical in your world as mm. well and i think i wanted really with the golden mole to try to conjure in people the astonishment that you would have if you encountered say a hedgehog for the first time, mm. because if we weren't used to them, we would travel to Yosemite to see them. You know, we would travel thousands and thousands of miles. It, 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 someone gave a mouse some knives. <laughs> it seems extraordinary to me. And I wanted to give children a sense that we used to think unicorns were real. Mm. They are not real, but narwhals are real. Mm. It is all on a continuum of wonder. And I wanted the book in some ways to engender in children that same spirit of wonder, because if you can teach them wonder, you can teach them to move that wonder into the real world. Mm. And that's a really important part of the book, and one that I think, so it, I'm gonna mention climate. Yes. And it's sort of obviously a topic that everybody's talking about to the point where eyes will glaze over and try not to engage. The, the wonder for me with this book was that f switch that you flip, which is to try and see the creatures in our world in those magical, mythical ways, because therefore you would protect them that bit mm. more. You wouldn't think of them as being ordinary and mundane. Mm. And it, it seems clear to me that what you're trying to do is to teach children to, I suppose, to revere the, the natural world and the, the sort of the biology that's out there. It's clearly a really important thing to you. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about why that's the key, one of the key messages for the book? I think it is something that it is so important we teach children now. There's a 
a G.K. Chesterton quote at the beginning of my adult book, The Golden Mole, mm. the one about real animals, which is, the world will not starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. And I think there is a real sense that we have been careless, we have been insufficiently precise in our astonishment, we have been insufficiently political in our love, we have been insufficiently active in our hope, and I want to give children a sense that there is still so much to save, and your awe, your reverence for that which we share the world will be urgently needed. And I guess I also wanted to give them a sense that the world is full of astonishments. Standing mm. ovations await your bravery. Be tough and go forth because you will need to. It is a book that is filled with ideas, but actually it's also filled with characters. I don't want to make it sound too heavy. <laughs> and, and the important thing is that there are these fantastic characters who are interesting and diverse and fascinating and have great things that different kids will latch onto, basically. Um, tell me a little bit about assembling your cast of characters and, and how they came about, um, because they're a very interesting bunch. <laughs> so that was the great joy, coming up as well with the people with whom you then have to spend time. In my case, because I write so slowly and I rewrite so much, um, I think I had the idea for Mal, the girl, from the archipelago who has a flying coat that allows her to fly only when the wind blows. Mm. I had the idea for her in 2016. And then there's Christopher in our world. Mal has a tiny, um, a, Mal has a tiny griffin who is bound up in love with her. And then there is also a character called Nighthand who is a berserker who feels no fear which also means you feel no fear about wildly insulting everyone you encounter. Um, <laughs> there's a girl called Irian, and I wanted her to be a scholar. I don't think there are enough scholars in children's books. Um, and I also wanted the creatures to be personalities. So mm. there is the same Jaculus that Pliny found in his natural history is, in my book, a tiny dragon that can perch on the top of your thumb, who talks like a academic who has just lost a bet at the races in the 1800s, if drunk. I think that's the sort of vibe I was going for. And then um, there's a Ratatoska. Ratatoskas are squirrels who pass on news. And um, they're, of course, uh, from uh, sort of Scandinavian Norse mythology. And this one is incurably inaccurate. And then there are sphinxes who, of course, ask you riddles, and if you fail to answer them, have an ancient right which they will take to eat you. And putting all of these characters together, what you're trying to do, I think, is give children a sense of delight mm. and adventure that will grab them by the list and not let them go. And then, you know, on that wave of adventure, you try to sail the ideas that you also want to whisper in their ear about love and care and wit and patience. I know that children reading it will have their favourite character, the one that they maybe sort of, you know, identify with or are entertained by the most. I, I presume you can't have a favourite character because you have to be very <laughs> even-handed, but was there perhaps a character that was m more fun to write than any of the others? Um, I think Jacques, the tiny dragon, yep. the tiny Jaculus, he was 
a constant delight and his voice came very easily. I think my favorite character in this book is Mal, mm. the girl who has a, she is readily embarrassed and readily frustrated. She doesn't have particularly extraordinary manners, but what she has is a sense of grit. And the older I get, the more I admire determination. There is a quote on the front of the book, which I place behind you. And I'm, I'm going to embarrass you now by just reading out because I just think it's, it's an amazing quote. There was Tolkien, there is Pullman, and now there is Catherine Rondell. And that quote is from Michael Morpurgo. <laughs> the reason why I'm reading it out is because obviously it places you amongst a certain type of, of children's writer and if we're being honest, you know, incredible company. And I wonder how you feel about being spoken about in those terms. Um, so I think anyone who writes fantasy is, of course, necessarily following in the footsteps of the greats. Mm. And the only way you can do it and not be slaughtered and utterly flattened by terror, because their talent is so colossal and so life-changing for me when I was a child, I think is to think of it less as you are trying to be someone's heir or follow in their footsteps and more like what if the tradition of fantasy in this country is more like a song that is passed down from generation to generation and each generation picks up that song and sings it on to the next. Mm-hmm. And what if that song has been singing since Beowulf and since Jethro of Monmouth in Merlin in the 12th century and fairy queen in the 16th, then thinking of oneself as just one very small, tiny voice in a song that we sing as naturally as we speak. That, I think, gives me comfort because otherwise I would die of terror. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you may have thought that the embarrassment would end there, but it's not. (laughs) The reason why I'm reaching for my book is because this book is filled with wonderful turns of phrase, whether it's describing the location or the animals, but it's also filled with wisdom. And the kind of wisdom which you might think has no right to be in a children's book, it should be in a book for adults, but I'm, I'm going to read a bit because it's one of those bits that just kind of hit me. And it's because it's to do with one of the key themes of the book, which is friendship. And if you, if you can find a better description of what friendship is than this paragraph, I, I will give you money. Not much, but some. Um, but Christopher didn't have the words then to explain what, as an old man, he would tell. That sometimes, if you're among the lucky, a spark of understanding cuts through the space between two people. And it comes, he would say, with a wave of sudden, rich, wild liking. And it toughens you and nourishes you. And the word we've chosen for it, which is an insufficient word for being so abruptly upended in new and finer place, is friendship. That is just an incredible description of what friendship is. You've spoken a bit about how children's writing has the ability to place some really big ideas in their head. When I was acting, I did a children's show and we were told this is the most important day Mm. for that child potentially because it could put them onto theatre for life or it could turn them off for life. No no pressure, but don't mess it up kind of thing. Do you feel that that kind of pressure as a writer? Hugely, and I think any children's writer worth their salt does. The knowledge that 
because of the age I write for, the sort of 9 to 12s, mm. you could be the first book that a child loves. I get letters from children saying that some of my books have been the first book they've loved. And you could also be the book that makes them decide to give up on books. Mm. But maybe even more than that, children don't have a hinterland of experience yet, but they have a profundity of emotional experience and of understanding. And so I think it is so important that you do not belittle the depth of their capacity for something like friendship. Mm. Child friendship is real friendship. Child love is real love. Child cruelty, children to children, is very real as well. Mm. I wanted to write something that would acknowledge the depth and breadth of what it is to be a child in the world. And also, when a child loves a book, they eat it, they are hungry for it, and therefore it is your duty not to give the hungry anything cheap or thin or uncared for or fishy or poorly thought through. Mm. I, think, I think if anyone owes their reader a debt and a duty, it is people who write for kids. Um, and I just wanted to give a, a mention to the illustrator, Thomas Love Tomic. <sighs> Um, it must be a weird thing to have sort of the pictures in your head as you're writing and then to sort of see those brought to life in an illustrator. Could you just tell me a little bit about what it's like to see those pictures? Uh, it was such a huge delight the day Thomas Love said yes, that he would illustrate just the bestiary at the beginning, these 21 animals. Um, four of them are in colour and not, not in the book, I should say. Four of them are in colour elsewhere. But that bestiary especially some of the creatures that wouldn't be so familiar to people. Mm. I was bowled away just by how delicious they are. <laughs> they are funny and sharp and he also works fast. He is a genius. And so things like um, the little Ratatoskas or the Kankos, which are very, very small fox-like creatures with um, two tails, we have one clutching an acorn to show that it's very small. And, um, you know, the Nereids, which are a kind of mermaid but with legs and famously much more dangerous. He sort of gets in them a kind of beauty and a kind of fury. Mm. I was so delighted by them. Um, now, I know you can't tell me what's coming in books two and three, but there are books two and three coming. Um, when you're writing across sort of two, two or three books, uh, is there a sort of a skill, I suppose, in knowing when to deploy <laughs> the various bits of information that you have up there and are, and are holding away from the reader. Um, and you mentioned you were a slow writer. So how long are you going to make us wait for book two? <laughs> so I think book two will be out in two years. Okay. Um, yes, I think that's right. I, it is such an interesting question. When you drop the pieces of clues that you need to give someone, not just for book two, but also for book three, mm. but I am aiming much more for a Narnia situation than a Pullman situation, just in the sense of contained stories where you could yep. read book two before you'd read book one, mm -hmm. um, rather than absolutely consecutive and picking up from the second that we left off. So book two will not begin the day after book one ends. There will be, you will see the characters again, there will be new characters. For instance, there's a male berserker, there'll be a, a girl berserker mm -hmm. in book two. But 
but there will be shifts in time and new islands to explore as well. We have our first scoop. <laughs> it doesn't start on the day after this book. Um, Catherine, I would love to press you for more information, but I will respect the process. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's really great to speak to you about Impossible Creatures. And we can only wait uh, with Beta Birth for uh, books two and three. Thank you so much.